can have a seat. Uh, at times, as we've gone through Ecclesiastes together, it may feel to you like you've been sitting in a philosophy class, as this book is indeed one of the most philosophical books in the Bible. And because Solomon has said some things that really sound similar to other philosophers that we've heard, this is especially true when it comes to the topic or the theme of death. Listen to what some other famous thinkers in history have said about death. Plato suggested that one of the biggest purposes of philosophy was to practice for death and dying. Epicurus claimed that fear of death held us back from living fulfilling lives. So we should live it up and seek as much sensation as possible now while we're alive. Stoic and Emperor Marcus Aurelius said, You could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. Much later, the French philosopher Michel de Montaigne urged that we should frequently premeditate on death in order to learn how to live and die. And the list could go on and on with thinker after thinker, coming to similar conclusions. Death is certain. Life is short. Live it up. And even to this day, we hear the same. In a TED Talk given in the last couple years, Jody Wellman tried to prove that regularly remembering our death can, in a sense, bring us back to life, snapping us out of our autopilot, and helping us live fully regret-free lives. Some of these thoughts really sound like they could have been yanked right out of Ecclesiastes, right? So what then? Is Ecclesiastes just Solomon's personal twist on these various philosophies? Well, no. For one, Ecclesiastes likely came first, so... Solomon's not remixing them. They might be remixing him. But what do we make of all the, the similar conclusions from secular thinkers and Scripture? Well, I hope you realize that the common grace of God in creation means that glimmers of truth can be found almost anywhere, even from so-called secular thinkers. Like, it only makes sense that there will sometimes be overlap in our thinking and teaching because we're living in the same world, observing the same realities of life. And yet, there are important distinctions between secular views on death and Solomon's views. Mainly, in the cause of death, lying in the curse that God placed on the earth after we sinned, and in the purpose of life and death, being to lead us to depend on the Lord and to fear Him. So today, I want us to put down our iPhones, our fire stick remotes, our game controllers, 
Like the things that we often use to ignore or cope with our fallen human condition. Let's stop pretending. Let's stop escaping. Let's stop avoiding and let's get real. And let's listen in on the wisdom of God's word which teaches us how to live in light of death. So if you haven't already, please turn in a Bible to Ecclesiastes with me. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is where we'll be today. I'll give you today's whole message at the risk of repeating myself, because Solomon has already given many similar thoughts. He really wants to hammer this home to us. Chapter 8, if you were with us last week, taught us about both the value of wisdom and the limitations of wisdom. And the chapter concluded this way. said, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. So our limits as humans were exposed in contrast with the power, work, and wisdom of God. Despite Solomon's ongoing frustration, however, he felt that there were good things to take to heart. Look at verse 1. Chapter 9 says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of of God, in the hand of God. In the hand of God means that we are subject to God's sovereign power. We aren't in control of our lives or our world. He is. Even if we are righteous people, living the right ways, or wise people, knowing the right ways to apply knowledge to our lives, it doesn't mean our hands are the ones on the steering wheel. Now, how this truth makes you feel is a good test for how much you trust in the Lord or in yourself. If it freaks you out a little bit or worries you, I would bet that you either don't trust that God loves you enough to have your best at heart, or that he's powerful enough to really control things well. If this truth angers you, then you likely have too high a view of yourself, too much pride, feeling that you should be the captain of your own fate. In other words, you trust yourself. But, if we believe that God is immeasurably more loving than we are and more powerful than we are, then this truth should actually be extremely comforting to us. Relieving, even. You don't have to be in control because he is. And that's way better. But then all this I laid to heart examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. In other words, love or hate or anything in between or both could await us 
in our future. But the point is, we don't know. And we don't know what the future has in store for us. At least for the most part. There is one thing we know. One certain thing. One ominous event. In verse 2 it says, It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. So unless Jesus comes back first, it doesn't matter who you are, righteous or not, virtuous or not, religious or not, Christian or not, we will all die. Maybe Solomon looked back on history, the characters he knew, Noah or Nimrod, Moses or Pharaoh, Joshua or the Jerichoites, Samuel or Saul, his dad David, or his brother Absalom, they all died. And we too could look back since Solomon and see that the same event just keeps happening to King Josiah or Queen Jezebel, Esther or Haman, Mary or Herod, Paul or Nero, Joan of Arc, or Genghis Khan, John Newton, or John Smith, Bonhoeffer, or Hitler, Martin Luther King Jr., or Jeffrey Dahmer, Queen Elizabeth, or Bin Laden. The same event happened to every one of them, without distinction. They lived vastly different lives, and yet shared a common destiny in death. One day they all breathed their last breath on this broken world. And I know I don't need, or you don't need to be convinced. You just need reminded that you too will die. So then, is Solomon saying that it doesn't matter how we live? Right? Do whatever you want. Still going to bite the dust in the end. No, that's not his point. He's just pointing out how none of us can escape death, whether we're good or bad. And these brute facts may not seem very fair to us, because we naturally see ourselves as pretty great. So it grates against our pride and our self-sufficiency. It grated on Solomon. Look at verse 3 where he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Now, by evil, he's not saying that us all dying is a moral evil, but rather this is a tragedy. It seems wrong to us. Outrageous even. Like one author puts it, If you expect good people to get a fair deal from the Grim Reaper then you have a very bitter pill to swallow. We definitely don't feel like we should be lumped in with all the villains out there. But surprise. 
You're human. And humanity is currently under God's curse of death. Like Adam and Eve may seem like distant history, thus irrelevant to us, but we inherited a very real sin nature from them, and we've sinned just like them. Therefore, we taste the same curse they experience every time we taste death, which happens about 166,000 times every year worldwide. Almost two times every second. This all seems wrong to us because it is something wrong with our world under the sun. Things are not how God intended them to be. So we echo, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun. The same event happens to all. I think Solomon is pointing out something about life that is super frustrating. In other words, it's a vanity. Because he wants to sober us and humble us. And this gives us a first major takeaway. That living in light of our deaths frustrates us into sober humility. Living in light of our deaths frustrates us into sober humility. Humility. I've been trying to get my little daughter to learn how to crawl lately. And in order to do that, I've been putting her on the ground with toys just out of her reach. Might appear to be cruel, not just giving her the toy. So I'm teasing her. But I might even keep pulling the toy further away as she reaches for it. And it's not being mean. My frustrating her is intentional in order to achieve a good goal. Death, being the same reality for us all, is meant to frustrate us. Endless life is out of our reach. Though, unlike me with my daughter, God's intent isn't just to inspire us to figure out how to do things on our own, as if we can overcome death ourselves. His intent is to make us realize we're stuck where we are. We are helpless in need of him. And then a second part is added to this frustration. Continue in verse 3. He says, Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Like, we're full of it. Can you sense Solomon's agony here in these verses? Life is short. Death is certain. And to top it off, while we live, we all sin profusely against God and against each other. The world's gone mad. could read... Solomon's logic like this, if everyone comes to the same fatal end, is it any wonder that people just don't care how they live out their lives? If there's no change in your fate, then why not do whatever your heart pleases? And yet at the same time, he confesses, this is madness. It's insanity. We know 
There's more to life than just living for ourselves. For although they, that's us, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Consider this. Where does your sense of outrage over injustice come from? Because that intuition comes just as naturally to you as your mortality. Automatically comes. Like you know death is unjust in the way it strikes everyone the same. And it's even worse when the young or healthy or innocent die. But if death is just a purely natural event that shouldn't bother us at all, that's what a lot of philosophers end up at or biologists end up at. Like, if this is just a natural event, then why does it bother us? We intuitively sense that things aren't how they should be. A sense, I believe, can only come from an objective source of morality like God. Which ultimately implies that things are not nearly as hopeless as they may feel. Because if there is a God who gave us life, then he can deal with death too. Besides, we shouldn't give in to despair now, even if death is our destiny, because we ain't dead yet. In verse 4, Solomon reminds us that things are not hopeless even in this dire state. He says, But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Here's the point we see, that living in light of our deaths forces us to cling to the hope we have. Living in light of our deaths forces us to cling to the hope we have. There's that, that verse 4 is like a beam of light in the middle of this dark paragraph. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. So if you're still alive, you're joined with all the living, you have hope. Hope for what? A hope for life instead of death. A hope for fulfillment, for satisfaction, for happiness, a hope for better days, a hope for anything outside the frustrating vanity of this fallen world. To put it in Christian terms, it's a hope for salvation, for deliverance, for the Lord. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. Are you sobered and humbled by the reality of your mortality? By your destiny of death? By your powerlessness to change the situation? Be humbled, but don't despair. Like, do you feel your lungs inhaling and exhaling right now? Can you feel your pulse? Then there's hope for you. Hope for you to see that you're actually already dead in your sin. 
There's hope for you to admit your dire need for God to save you from sin and death. There's hope for you to believe Jesus died and rose in your place. And there's hope for you to confess him as your Savior and Lord, even today. You have a day of opportunity available to you right now. You have hope. However, there's an expiration date on this opportunity. Because you have an expiration date. But as long as you have hope, it's obviously better than not having hope, right? Which is the deciding point in life's favor. Life is simply better than death. And that's Solomon's point with that strange-sounding proverb in the second half of verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Uh, In our culture, we lose the force of this saying as we see dogs as man's best friends. That was decidedly not the case throughout history. Dogs were often despised animals. Meanwhile, lions are fairly admired, feared as deadly, naturally demanding your respect. And if you pitted a dog versus a lion in a fight, the lion would obviously destroy the dog. The lion is seen as the stronger, the the clearly superior creature. So this is irony. He's saying it's better to be a dog than a lion. What? How? Oh, did I mention the lion is dead? (laughs) Therefore, it'd be better to even be a a dirty, despicable, rangy, mutt-eating garbage who happens to be alive than to be a dead king of beasts. Translating that to humanity, it's better to be a poor, friendless, downtrodden pauper, say, living in a slum, than it is to be a king or queen a billionaire, or a superstar who's lying in a coffin. And don't forget the reason why. Because as long as you're alive, you have hope to cling to. And unlike the dead, you also possess vital knowledge which can change your life. Verse 5 says, For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Now, this does not mean that there is no consciousness after death in heaven or hell. Neither does it mean that there are no heavenly rewards like the Bible tells us elsewhere. Solomon is just focused here on the benefit or the gain we receive in this life. What do we gain now? And he's saying that once you're dead, your life is over. It's final. There's no going back and changing things like Ant-Man or Marty McFly. So it's better to live knowing you'll die than to die and not have any more bearing on your life. That's his point. Everything you've done, good or bad, becomes set in stone once you're dead. 
Verse 6 says, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And at that point, we will be forever gone from this fallen world. And that forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. We say, really? Forever? Well, yes, because even when we come back to the world, the world will be restored, not broken anymore. Won't be under the sun anymore. So, no matter what Solomon understood about the afterlife, this was true. You have one life to live under the sun, and you have a share in life here now. But one day, all you'll own is a box and a burial plot. And technically, not even that anymore. Peter Lightheart sums up this sobering reality well. It says, jog and lift weights until you're 85. Aspire to be the healthiest 90-year-old in history, but eventually you'll be a corpse. Delay the inevitable with skin creams and makeup. Maintain your youthful appearance with plastic surgery and liposuction, but eventually your beauty will fade. Build a billion-dollar business. Spread your product over the globe, but eventually your product and your company will grow old and fade away. But that won't bother you, because long before your company dies, you will. Organize and schmooze and network your way to the heights of political power, but soon enough your power will drift away. Build a tower that reaches to the sky, but someday it will be dust, and if it stands, no one will remember your name. If by some slim chance of fate your name is remembered, you won't be around to enjoy the acclaim. Now, even though believers' problem of death is essentially resolved by Jesus and his resurrection, death remains an awful reality on this side of glory, right? It still packs a doozy of a sting. And we will all still pass through its dark shadow when we or someone we care for dies. Into this, Jesus steps and goes, trust me, follow me, take my hand, I'll walk with you. You don't need to understand everything. Don't worry, I do. Cling to hope in me. You don't need to attain perfect peace or happiness now. Don't worry. It will be well. See, death itself should make us cling to him in hope. Like Paul and Timothy did in 2 Corinthians, talking about a a severe affliction they experienced, they said, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Have you set your hope on him? 
as has been Solomon's habit in Ecclesiastes, right when things get really dark, he lets the sun break through with a surprising, beautiful, carpe diem passage. So, death is universal. Death is final. And in light of that, look at verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. David Gibson explains that Solomon wrote this to smash into tiny pieces our idea that we can be like God. We aspire to have it all, know it all, do it all, achieve it all, be happy forever, have all the answers, never be left scratching our head, and be remembered by all for all time. That's what we hope for. But what guarantee is there that we won't go under a bus tomorrow? If you knew that would happen to you tomorrow, how would you live today? The life you have today comes from God's hand as a gift. And like the gifts wrapped under your Christmas tree right now, or that you're yet to wrap, gifts are meant to be enjoyed. Here's the point we glean from this patch of sunlight here. Living in light of our deaths fills us with a joyful enthusiasm for life. Living in light of our deaths fills us with a joyful enthusiasm for life. Solomon's certainly enthusiastic here. He's like, go! So go ahead! Seize life! Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Don't be shy. Don't hold back. Dive into life headfirst, enthusiastically. The Christian philosopher Soren Kierkegaard someone I didn't quote at the beginning today, taught that reflecting on death should lead to an intensification of life. An intensification of life. That perceiving our scarcity of time frees us from vain pursuits and gives the earnest person the right momentum in life. In this passage... Solomon gives us multiple areas we should find an intensification of life, an intensification of joy in. Consumption, attire or appearance, relationships, work, and knowledge. Starting with consumption, what we eat or drink. Go, eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Now, bread was associated with daily sustenance. Wine was associated with joy. But really, they can represent any food or drink. Pastor Kenny, and he, I didn't warn him I was going to say this, but he hasn't got a chance to preach in this Ecclesiastes series. But as we discussed some of the content together, he recalled one of his professors in Bible college who kept telling his students, God wants you to enjoy your lunch. God wants you to enjoy your lunch. And most of the students were pretty baffled, not getting what he meant. This is what he meant. <laughs> Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already proved what you do. God wants us to delight in the good gifts that he gives us, from waffles to wine. 
In fact, he himself delights in our delight. He takes pleasure in our pleasure. David Gibson talks about telling his mom that I don't need anything for Christmas. Like, I'm an adult now. I can get it myself. But she keeps getting him something anyway. Why? Because, as any parent can attest, what we love as we give is the pleasure on the face of the person who receives. And this is what the second half of verse 7 is saying, that God is like that. Go eat your bread, drink your wine, for God has already approved what you do. He approves of you consuming what he provides for your table. And in a world full of distraction, frenetic activity, consumerism, and overconsumption, it becomes all the more powerful an act to slow down and thank the Lord for and savor the simple daily gifts of food and drink. Giving our attention to him and his creation. One more thing to notice from verse 7 before moving on. is the word already. And God has already approved what you do. I love that. What comes first? God's approving or our doing? God's approving. And this is the pattern of grace that we see throughout all of God's word. From simple things like bread on a table to epic realities like justification by faith. We act out of God's prior action and approval. We do because God has done. And God gives and gives and gives regardless of what we can or cannot accomplish or achieve ourselves. Like, how freeing is that? Like, God doesn't wait to see if what we do is worthwhile. It will be worthwhile because he's already blessed and approved of it. So go. In verse 8, Solomon commends also caring for our attire or our appearance, even our hygiene. Verse 8 says, Let your garments be always white, and let not oil be lacking on your head. Now, wearing white clothes in that day signified celebration or joy, and in their hot climate, it kept you cooler. And so he's saying, it's a good thing to wear clothes that make you happy and comfortable. Again, these are good gifts from God. And it's good to enjoy his gifts. Now, yeah, sure, there are ways to sin with our appearance. Simple enjoyment is not one of them. And yes, we're going to die. But that doesn't mean how we dress or look doesn't matter to God. And Jesus told us to not be anxious about our attire, saying, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So life is more than this, more than food, more than clothes. And yet, clothes are still part of the life he gives. Right? If, if God so clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Oil. 
too, was associated with joy, as well as being part of basic hygiene. In their climate, it was a way to look after yourself by protecting against dryness. It's with oil in your hair. See, receiving the gift of each day includes doing our regular daily rhythms with joy. Taking showers or baths, brushing your teeth, exercising, doing chores, and so on. As embodied creatures, these habits carry more significance than we might think because they enhance our ability to enjoy the life God gives us. So let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Next, if God has blessed you with the gift of marriage, enjoy it. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now, this can apply to all human relationships, but Solomon focuses here on marriage. Enjoying this would include companionship or friendship and sexual intimacy. As we've seen in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun is better together. Like the curse brought brokenness and disharmony into our relationships. But it wasn't good for man to be alone even before the curse. Now, we as a church, we don't want to idolize marriage or to treat it or to treat unmarried people as, as lesser in any way. But at the same time, we want to hold marriage in high honor as it's a good and gracious blessing from God meant to be cherished. If you're married, but not happily right now, you may just need to hear this as a reminder of how God intended for your marriage to operate. Like our brokenness, and the devil's attacks can make a mess of things. And if you're not enjoying each other, then, then some sin has likely gotten in the way, or many sins. But pursuing restoration and healing is a good thing to pray for, to, to work towards. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. It's our portion. Another way of saying our, rela it's this, our relationships are given to us by God as a gift. So don't despise or neglect or take your gifts for granted. By calling our days vain there, he's just emphasizing how fleeting and fragile our days are. Since life goes by fast, enjoy the days you have with your spouse now, or all your loved ones, for that matter. Relish the time you have with those you love, for tomorrow they may be gone. Or you may be. So food and drink, garments and oil, husbands and wives, and finally, our work and activities. In verse 10. 
Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, or that is the grave to which you are going. So whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might or all your might. Do it with enthusiasm. Reminds me of Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Work hard. Work heartily and do it now as it's your one and only chance to do so. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom and shield to which you are going. Like once you're lying six feet under, you will no longer be able to work or plan or study or grow. Again, this isn't a statement about what we will or won't do in heaven. It's just saying, this life is your only opportunity to do the work of this life. But you see how living in light of our deaths can actually fill us with a joyful enthusiasm for life. Charles Swindoll succinctly summed it up as, have a blast while you last. Like I've said before, Ecclesiastes is less saying, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. It's more, eat, drink, and be merry for today we live. And God's given us this gift of life. Author N.D. Wilson wrote a while back, I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could be smiling or scowling, rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this story, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be giving my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths to my wife and to my children and my neighbors. Or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die, and therefore afraid to live. Not long after he wrote those words, a brain tumor was discovered growing in his head. And he had to wrestle through maybe having only a fraction of those hours left. But in the midst of that trial, he still confessed this. God is good. God is faithful. I am grateful to God for the stories he gives us to read and to live. I know that some of you are walking through similarly super tough things right now. Really hard trials here under the sun. But can you be grateful, if nothing else, for God's goodness and faithfulness, even here and even now? Because he's still writing your story. And you're still in his hand. Now, the Bible tells us that the present form of this world is passing away along with its desires. So in certain ways, we're not meant to love this fallen world. And yet, there is still so much good that God has given. In order to direct our hearts to him, and in order to give us little tastes of our true home. 
paraphrase David Gibson, God uses a variety of tools to make us homesick for heaven. Death, sickness, uncertainty, grief, these are some of his tools. They dislodge us from seeking our security in the here and now. But the gifts of God are also meant to stir our hearts for heaven. Precisely because they are so good. They dimly reflect our eternity. His gifts are foretastes and appetizers for the heavenly banquet to come. Where we will be united to our truest spouse in the marriage that all marriages are meant to point to. And where we'll be clothed in white, anointed with joy forever, serving the king of kings forever. For now, we eat and we drink and then we vanish. But one day, death will vanish like a vapor. And then, we'll really get down to feasting. So savor the fleeting foretastes we get now. Gibson concludes that those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking because it looks a little like what we will do after we die. The gifts are from the real country. They smell and taste and feel like home. If you've ever read the Chronicles of Narnia before, Remember the unicorn in the last battle when he arrives in the new and true Narnia? He stamps his hooves and neighs, crying out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looks a little like this. When I planned out this series, I didn't anticipate it would fall right as we would be mourning death. God knew. But I think the life and death of Grace Harris, who many of you knew, really testified to the truths of this passage. In certain ways, Grace's life was poignantly marked by death. She married a widower with a baby whose mother had died in childbirth. She loved her husband who went to the Lord himself 28 years before she did. So she lived as a widow for nearly three decades. And Grace, we know, is quite strong and healthy herself for much of her life. But she lived long enough. She was alive to witness multiple wars in which people she knew died. She would have watched news of the Holocaust, genocides, so much brokenness in this world. The last 13 years that I knew her, she often talked about longing for heaven, which only ratcheted up in her final years. She openly clung to her hope 
And did any of this steal her joy? Not at all. She had a tangible zest for life, an obvious gratitude that she expressed frequently. Her face usually was shining with a smile. She was always sending birthday cards out, making cookies for everyone. She ate her bread with joy. I don't know if she drank wine, but she had a merry heart. She dressed up, liked it when others did too. She always wished I wore more ties. (laughs) She enjoyed life with her husband, whom she loved, all the days of their fleeting lives. And whatever her hands found to do, from being a, a dairy farmer's wife, being a mother and a grandmother, to banging out hymns on a church organ. She did it with all her might. God was gracious to grace, and she savored his grace all the way to the grave. When we think of grace in her example, or others like her, you may know, may our hearts drift to the Lord. And may we notice the amazing graces he gives to us all the days of our vain lives. May he use both our trials and our gifts to make us homesick for our true home with him. And may we, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, you all to the glory of God. Father, would you do this work in us now? Make this true for us. Thank you for life. And thank you for our true home that's coming. In Jesus' name, amen.